Well, good afternoon and hello again from Tyler, Texas and the West Irwin Church of Christ in Bill's office with pictures of the lovely Joyce around and the lovely grandchildren. Uh, glad that you are able to be here and joining me as we continue on this study through the book of Acts. We're going to be in uh, Acts chapter 8 today, which is a really exciting chapter with a lot of things happening and then some exciting chapters ahead. Chapter 9, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul the Apostle. Chapter 10, the first Gentile convert. Cornelius, chapter 11, Peter has to answer to his fellow Jewish leaders in Jerusalem why he went into a Gentile's home and ate and actually baptized him. Uh, and then in chapter 12, the first apostle uh, killed for the faith. Uh, James, the brother of John, and then in chapters 13 and 14, the, the first mission journey that Paul takes with Barnabas, and then the big Jerusalem conference in Acts 15, and that'll be enough uh, to get us into what we're doing, uh, getting started with right now. Nice to see a few folks joining in. Uh, my friend Debbie Spears is here, wonderful sister in Christ that's a member of our church family here at West Irwin, and uh, others will be joining along as well. I do have to give a little shout out to Mr. William Allen Tyndall. Our grandson, Will, Silly Willie, is uh, seven years old today, and he is an absolute delight. That kid is amazing. He is wonderful. We love him, and Joyce and I, Gammy and Papa, are completely and totally 100% objective in saying that. It is clear. It is clear. He is smart. He is athletic. He's super handsome. Uh, he is just going to be a killer as he grows up. He's just a wonderful little kid, just lots of fun. And uh, we're excited about what the future holds for him. But today is his birthday. Uh, so happy birthday, Will, from Gammy and Papa in Texas. And we hope to get to see you sometime uh, sometime soon. Uh, glad to see Larry and Lynn Murphy here. And some others I know will be joining us as well as we kind of get going on this study. Uh, Acts chapter 8 is a is a great, great chapter, as I said, and kind of as we uh, as we get started, let's we've kind of shown you what said a few moments ago, what happens from here. But let's talk a little bit about how we got here. Uh, in Acts chapter one, Jesus hasn't ascended yet; he has been crucified and resurrected, and has appeared to many. And just before he ascends, uh, Luke records in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that he gives uh, his disciples their marching orders, our marching orders in Acts 1 verse 8 that we are to be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem. At that time they were told at the end of the Gospels to wait in Jerusalem until they received power from on high, the promised Holy Spirit, and we'll be talking about him today as well. Uh, and so Jesus tells them that they will be his witnesses there beginning in Jerusalem and then in the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria. That's where we are today in Acts chapter 8. And then to the very end uh, of the world and the end uh, throughout the uh, world. So it's a great, uh, a great statement that Jesus makes and then he ascends. Uh, the disciples wait for the Spirit in prayer and in Acts chapter 2 that Holy Spirit comes and the apostles begin to speak in other languages. Uh, they baptize 3,000 that day and the church begins with a bang and is off and running. Uh, they add people to the church every single day as they respond in faith. We'll be talking about that response in faith today in Acts chapter 8 on a couple of occasions uh, as Philip teaches the Samaritans. Um, and then in Acts chapter 3, uh, the disciples are meeting at the end of chapter 2. We read about how they're growing every day, how they are continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching 
uh, in the breaking of bread, uh, that communion that they share, uh, the fellowship that they enjoy together every day, and in prayer. Uh, in Acts chapter uh, 3 and 4, we see, and a little bit of 5, we see the beginnings of persecution. Peter and John are threatened. Uh, they are threatened to no longer speak in the name of Christ, and they say we must obey God uh, rather than man. And they continue to speak in Acts chapter 5. Um, the apostles are all arrested, and they're told to uh, uh, no longer speak, and then they were miraculously released, and they're out there preaching the next day. And so the Jewish leaders bring them in, and they uh, punish them, have them beaten and flogged. Uh, and then we get to Acts chapter 6 and the first big church fight uh, over racial issues along with care of the elderly, the widows uh, that were there as a part of the, of the church. And uh, some of those who came from a, a Hellenistic background who were from outside of Palestine, Jews, yes, but outside of Palestine, they, uh, their widows were being neglected. And so the church uh, picked seven men, including Philip, who we'll hear about today, and Stephen, uh, to be among those seven, and they took care of those needs. They were men filled with the Spirit, very spiritually-minded men who were able to take on that task so that the apostles could continue their ministry uh, and uh, continue in prayer and in the preaching of the Word. So it was a great, uh, it, was a, it was a wonderful conclusion to that potential conflict. And then in Acts chapter uh, 6 and 7, we read primarily about Stephen, one of those seven who becomes the first Christian martyr and he preaches this great sermon, sounds much like the sermon Peter preached, sounds much like the sermon that uh, Paul will preach on his first mission journey in the synagogues. And, uh, and because he applies it and tells his hearers that they have crucified the Son of God and that they are no better uh, than their ancestors who killed off all the prophets as well, uh, they don't like the sound of that. And so they pick up stones and rocks and stone him uh, to death. And Stephen becomes the first uh, Christian martyr. And we read, uh, introduced to a man by the name of Saul at the very beginning of Acts chapter 8. Saul was there giving approval to what was going on uh, and approving of, um, of Stephen being stoned uh, to death and killed. Uh, they had laid their garments at his feet and told him to watch them. And Saul of Tarsus was the man uh, for uh, the job. So we see a lot of that great history. Uh, we uh, are still very new in the church. Again, as I've said before, uh, dates are very hard to pin down. So I like approximations. Uh, if you figure that the church began Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection happening on a Passover weekend sometime around AD 30, uh, then we are, or we might say 30 CE, 30 common era, then uh, we may be just a few years beyond that now. We're not very far, and we're still in Jerusalem until now. And Acts chapter 8 brings us into that next step of fulfilling that great commission of Jesus. He had told them, as Luke records it in Luke 1 verse 8, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas, and then to the end of the world. Uh, we see that beginning to be fulfilled here in Acts chapter 8. Um, and so these first four verses we read on Tuesday, on uh, last Thursday, as we were talking about uh, the uh, the sermon and the death of Stephen. Um, and so in Acts chapter eight, verse one, Saul approved of their killing him, of putting Stephen to death by stoning him to death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church 
in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, verse 3, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So you have Judea and Samaria and Galilee, those three uh, Roman provinces, uh, areas in uh, Palestine, where uh, much of Jesus' ministry, all of his ministry pretty much, took place uh, between the Mediterranean Sea on the west and uh, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee on the east. We have uh, Judea to the south where Jerusalem is, where Bethlehem is, where uh, Joseph and Mary uh, were from. Um, and uh, where Jesus had to go and, uh, and be born because of that census. And then they uh, returned back to Nazareth, where apparently their home was. Uh, but uh, you have Judea to the south. Uh, just north of it is Samaria. Uh, the, the Samaritans were an outcast group, according to the Orthodox Jews. Uh, dates back a long, long way, including all the way back to the Assyrian exile, of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, including the area of Samaria, when uh, the Assyrians uh, in the 8th century BC in the 700, 721 BC took those Jews who lived in those northern tribes in the northern kingdom of, of what was called Israel and their capital city of Samaria, uh, destroyed them and took them into exile and, and things didn't go well for the people they transplanted there so they brought some of the original residents back and that became a kind of a half-breed lot that was looked down upon and scorned by all the Jews uh, forever after uh, and were enemies in a lot, of, a lot of times of the Jews in the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem, its capital, until Babylonia, the Babylonians came and took it away into captivity and exile in 586 B.C. Um, and then they return, and yet the Samaritans are still considered outcasts, even at the time of Jesus. Uh, the Samaritans were considered outcasts, and we see that in a few instances as Jesus interacts with the Samaritans, including the Samaritan woman at the well uh, in John chapter 4. Um, and then, of course, uh, now uh, we find the church beginning. We find uh, the church beginning to be persecuted, and we find um, uh, uh, Saul of Tarsus becoming the point man. He begins to lead the the process of persecuting and trying to destroy the church. They persecuted Jesus, uh, they threatened him, and then they, they uh, arrested him, and they uh, put him to death on the cross, and they thought they were done. And then, of course, the resurrection happened, and they couldn't dispel that because they couldn't produce the body. And, and the church begins uh, after that, 50 days after that, on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus had ascended, he had appeared to many uh, witnesses and those witnesses begin to tell that story after they receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. They begin to tell that story. They're baptized uh, a lot every day, 3,000 that first day, as I said. Um, and, and so now they're obviously not done with them. <laughs> the Jewish leaders call in Peter and John, first of all, to ask them why, what kind of power they had to heal this man that we read about in Acts chapter 3. And they say, hey, if you want to know why we did this good thing that we're being questioned for, uh, it's through the name of Jesus Christ. It's by the authority of Jesus. When you see that uh, being baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in Matthew 28 or, 
or being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2. Uh, you know that what that means is that it's by that authority, by the authority uh, of Jesus Christ. And so they tell them, hey, this is by the authority of Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that, that this man stands before you whole. Uh, and even though Jesus was put to death for making uh, such a statement that he would be the Son of God and he had power and authority from the Father, uh, Peter and John are not shy. And then later, uh, again, all the apostles are arrested and are threatened in Acts chapter 5 and ultimately are beaten and flogged and persecution begins continues with the death of Stephen, as we've said in Acts chapter 6 and 7, and now uh, the persecution becomes widespread. Paul, uh, who is still Saul of Tarsus, his name, he is also called Paul, the, the more Greek uh, term for his name, uh, as we read about later on uh, in his mission journey. Um, but for now, he's Saul of Tarsus, and the point man for the Jews, he's the guy leading the effort, to destroy the church. Saul began to destroy them. Verse 3 of Acts 8, going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so they left. All except the apostles left. Reading Acts chapter 8, verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The bad news is they were forced out of Jerusalem and even out of Judea uh, for many of them. Uh, the good news is they went everywhere preaching uh, the word. They were uh, avoiding and escaping persecution and being put in jail, being threatened, being beaten, being killed, just like Stephen was. But when they went, they went preaching that same message that got them into trouble. Why? Because you couldn't deny it. You couldn't deny it. And they had to speak, just like Peter said, you judge for yourselves whether it's right to obey God or man, but as for us, we can't help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. That should be true of all of us, no matter what the cost, no matter what the threats, uh, no matter what the difficulty that it might bring. And Jesus promised and said it would bring difficulty at times. Uh, still, we cannot help but speak about that message that has meant so much to us, that Lord that has actually saved us from our sins and has promised us eternal life. Uh, we, we, have to, we have to speak that message. We cannot deny him. And confession is going to play a big role in our lesson today as well. So that brings us up. Nice to see Jerry, Jerry and Beverly joining us. Eric and Cindy are here. Hooray. Uh, my cousin Francis, nice to see you. It's great to see you and glad that, uh, glad that you're here. I guess that's not my cousin Francis. That's my old, old, old friend, Francis. Not because she's old and I'm old, but because we've known each other a long time. I actually stayed at her house on a mission trip one time. So that's a lot. That's a big story that someday I'll get into, but not not right now. Glad to see you, Francis, and some others coming in as well, our good friends, Lenny and Joe, and I know there'll be several others that will come along along the way. Um, and so as we get into Acts chapter 8 a little bit further, we go down to Acts chapter 8, verse 5. All the apostles stay in Jerusalem. Everybody else is forced out, uh, and they are forced out speaking the word, Acts chapter 8, verse 4 says. And so that brings us to this man by the name of Philip. We're going to see Philip again. Philip was one of those seven that was chosen in Acts chapter 6 to help take care of the widows. Um, but we see that they already in Acts chapter uh, 6 that they were called upon to be spiritual men, uh, not just men who could do a task, but men who were close to God, men who were faithful Christians, men who were spiritual 
uh, in nature and in their devotion to Christ. And Philip is one of those, and we see that he is also good at spreading the message of Christ. Philip was a preacher and a teacher, just like Stephen. And, and as we see later on, he's referred to as Philip the Evangelist in Acts chapter 21. He has grown daughters, four grown daughters who, who prophesy, um, Luke records in Acts chapter 21. Um, so we're introduced to him again in Acts chapter 8, beginning at verse if you have a, an open Bible or you have your cell phone uh, Bible app, you can uh, check out the map of Samaria that likely may be included around this time uh, as the gospel is spread. Later on, you'll see a map of uh, Paul's first mission journey, likely. That will be found uh, when we get to Acts chapters 13 and 14. Philip, Acts 8 verse 5, went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Okay, so even though they're going north, they're going down. Why is that, Bill? Well, because there were mountains. It was kind of hilly in Jerusalem and in Judea, and it made it hard to get to, uh, and that's why it was so difficult to overtake uh, the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital city of Jerusalem. Ultimately, the Babylonians did, and of course, later the uh, Alexander the Great would, uh, the Romans would, all of that. Uh, but but they were going down to Samaria, even though they were going uh, north. We sing that beautiful song as the mountains surround Jerusalem. Uh, so the Lord surrounds his people, quoting one of the Psalms. Um, so Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, verse 6, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Philip went down to Samaria. He began preaching the word. People were accepting it, as we're going to see. People were being baptized. And Philip was doing great, incredible, miraculous works in front of them. Um, but they weren't. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. There was great joy in the city. Why? Because they were hearing the message of Christ. They were responding, as we'll see. And they were seeing Philip do incredible things to help people who were suffering, uh, just as Jesus had gone about doing good and healing people of all kinds of diseases and of impure spirits. Peter tells Cornelius in Acts 10, that's what Philip does here, uh, and the people have great joy. Then in verse 9, now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. Obviously not Simon Peter, uh, not one of the faithful Jewish Christians that we've already met, but this Simon was a Samaritan. This man, this Simon was a man of Samaria. Remember, these are still considered Jews. We don't get out of, the, uh, out of Judaism until Acts chapter 10. So these are Samaritans, yes, but they're also Jews. Uh, and, uh, and Philip is having a ministry there. Uh, and one of those is named. His name is Simon, and he was a sorcerer. He practiced sorcery, strictly forbidden according to the old law of Moses, but somebody that impressed people, as we shall see. Uh, he boasted, the middle of verse 9, Simon boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. The guy was good. How did he do that, Bill? Was it legit? I don't know. I, I really can't explain it. Maybe he did it through sleight of hand. Uh, maybe God sent a delusion. I, I don't know exactly what happened. 
but this man claimed to be a sorcerer. He was impressive enough that all the people followed him and, uh, and called him this great power. But it wasn't the real thing. And so we keep reading because he is confronted by the real thing when he sees Philip and what Philip does. Verse 12, but when they, the Samaritans, believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news, the gospel of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Simon was baptized. The other Samaritans who believed the message that Philip preached, they were all baptized, just like the 3,000 were in Acts chapter 2, just like they continued to see people being added to the Lord, to, the, to their number as they were being saved. Just as we're going to read about in the later part of this chapter, the Ethiopian official, uh, just as we're going to read about in Acts chapter 9 with Saul of Tarsus, just as we're going to read about in Acts 10 with Cornelius and his family, just as we're going to read about in Acts chapter 16 with Lydia and with her family and with that jailer and his family in the city of Philippi, uh, this, is, this is how it goes. And we're going to see this even more clearly when we see this story later on at the end of this chapter. Um, the Samaritans are baptized. The gospel is preached. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The response of faith is preached. Uh, that people are to believe in that message, that they are to repent, to turn away and change their lives, to turn away from their sin. They confess, as we're going to hear the Ethiopian do in just a little bit, and they are baptized. That's all a part of the response of faith. That's what Peter told them in Acts 2, to repent and be baptized. That's what these Samaritans did as well, including Simon, this man who practiced sorcery. But Philip was the only one doing all of these things still. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now, why Peter and John? Well, they were two of the apostles. And in Jerusalem, you have primarily the apostles there now that everybody is being scattered, including Philip. And they're being scattered everywhere, preaching the word as they go, including Philip. And they're bearing results. And Philip is baptizing people. And then word gets back to the church in Jerusalem, to the apostles. And when they heard about it, they sent Peter and John, two of their number, two of the apostles, to Samaria. Uh, and when they arrived, verse 15, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So here's how this goes, as best I can tell. Uh, they hear the message of God, the gospel Philip is preaching. They accept it. They believe. They, re they repent. They say, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to get on a different path. They uh, confess that faith, that it, that it is what they believe, and they're baptized. Uh, but they don't receive these extraordinary, miraculous gifts of the Spirit. Now, Peter had said in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, that if they would repent and be baptized on the day of Pentecost, those men and women who were cut to the heart and certainly convicted of their sins, that if they would repent and change their lives and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, 
uh, they would receive that salvation and they would receive the Holy Spirit. And so as best I can tell, the Holy Spirit is given, when a person is baptized into Christ, they receive that indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 1 and in Ephesians 1 as a, as a gift, as an earnest, as a deposit, guaranteeing that God is going to keep his promises and that he will save us for uh, eternity. This Holy Spirit that Paul talks about in such a great way throughout all of Romans chapter 8, that one who helps us in our prayers uh, with groanings that, that words human words can't, can't even begin to say. Uh, the Spirit helps us. The Spirit that dwells within us uh, helps us in that, uh, convicts us of our sin uh, and works through us. Um, but that's, that's not the miraculous power that Philip was demonstrating. Philip was healing people. He was casting out Im evil, impure spirits. Um, but as yet, the people weren't able to do that. And so Peter and John hear about it in Jerusalem. They go up, uh, they go down to Samaria, and as they do, uh, they begin to pray for the people. And verse 17 says, Then John, Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. I believe that the teaching of Scripture is that this miraculous, extraordinary gift and power and ability uh, to perform these extraordinary gifts, such as speaking in other languages without being trained, uh, prophesying, uh, speaking a, a bold message from God, either about the future or about today, um, being able to heal people. Uh, all of those things are gifts of the Spirit that are transferred when apostles lay their hands on people. Uh, we're going to see that laid out here in the verses that follow. And so what that means is when that those apostles die out, then the last remaining ones whom they have given that, that power to, those gifts to, um, they're the last ones that will have it. And then when that generation of people die out, then we don't see that anymore. And I think history bears that out. But Bill, what about all those stories of incredible, extraordinary things that, that happen? Well, I, I can't explain those. And I'm not going to be one to deny that it's from God. Uh, but I can tell you, I've never seen or heard or read about anything, anything like we see in the book of Acts with the early church, like we see in the life and ministry of Christ in the Gospels. There might be a story here and there about somebody who did something, and that's, again, if it draws people close to God, I, I can't explain it. But what I can say is it can't violate what Scripture teaches. If it does, then it's not from God. So if it brings people closer to the Word, if it brings people closer to the Lord, I'm for it. But it's nothing like what we read about here. Well, Bill, that seems a little presumptuous, you might say. Well, let's keep reading. Again, in, starting in verse 17 of Acts 8, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, verse 20, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. 
Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. And so Luke records Peter and John coming to the Samaritans where Philip had taught and preached and baptized people and done many good miraculous works, but not passed on that miraculous, extraordinary gift of the Spirit. And so they go and they lay their hands on them and pray and they receive the Holy Spirit, verse 17. And then verse 18, Simon, this guy who was a sorcerer, this guy who had followed Philip around everywhere, amazed at what he had done realizing this was for real, this wasn't like what he had done, he offers Peter and John money to do what? Not to just perform the gifts, that the, 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 the uh, incredible things that uh, Philip did. He offers them money to buy the gift to be able to pass that power on. Um, that's what he says in verse 19, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hand may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, we know. I mean, we're kind of expecting a lightning bolt here, right? This guy is offering them money to receive that gift that only the apostles had, as best we can tell. That seems to be the teaching of Scripture. Uh, we see it again in Acts chapter 19, when Paul is going into Ephesus, and he meets some individuals who had been baptized, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. And he asked them about it, and they said, well, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit unfortunately, like some people that I might know. That's a whole other story. Um, and so Paul says, well, then tell me about your baptism. In Acts 19, when they haven't heard of the Holy Spirit, he's questioning their baptism. And it was a baptism that John had preached. John and his disciples had preached about Jesus, the one who was to come, even though they didn't know him. And Jesus and his disciples had preached about the coming kingdom but they hadn't been baptized in the name of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so Paul does that, and Acts 19 records that he also lays his hands on them, and then they begin to speak in other tongues and prophesy, just like here in Acts chapter 8 with Peter and John. Simon tries to buy that gift with money, and Peter rebukes him. He says, may your money perish with you. It's, it's not happening. You're, you're not one of the ones that are called to do this. You have no part or lot in this. Your heart is not right before God, and you better repent. And apparently Simon does. He asks Peter and the others to pray for him that none of the horrible things that Peter had said would happen to him. And I think this is, the, this is a good model for us to use when a Christian sins. Um, you don't have to rebaptize him. A Christian is just as likely as anyone else uh, to sin. We, we get that. So what happens when you do? Are you supposed to be baptized every time you sin? Well, no, no. Simon, as best we can tell, wasn't rebaptized. His baptism was proper. Now, some people do uh, go through a second baptism, perhaps because they were very, very young. Perhaps they were baptized as an infant and had no idea what was going on. It wasn't their choice at all, and there's nothing in Scripture uh, to warrant such a thing. In Scripture, it is always a believer who is baptized, someone who has believed in Christ and has repented of their sins and has let others know, uh, confessed that they, they're doing this for real, and then are immersed uh, into Christ, just as Paul would write to the Roman Christians in Romans chapter 6 
We die to sin. We're buried with Christ through baptism into death, and we're raised to live a new life. That is the same image that Paul gives to the Colossians in Colossians 2. And so sometimes someone feels the need to do that, uh, but that should be very, very rare, very, very rare. And it's interesting that Peter and John do not tell Simon to do that. In spite of the fact that his heart was filled with wickedness, in spite of the fact that he tried to buy the gift of God that God had given to the 12 apostles with money, Peter doesn't tell him to be rebaptized. He doesn't tell him, look, your baptism didn't take, dude. But rather he tells him to repent. And Simon apparently does, and he asks them to pray for him. And that's what we do. Uh, James chapter 5 tells us that we should confess our sins to one another and pray for one another uh, so that we can be healed, so that we can be forgiven. Uh, we find that example right here being played out and lived out in the life of Simon. They continue, Peter and John continue to preach the word there, and they are able to, uh, uh, to then go back to Jerusalem and preach the gospel along along the way. This is interesting in Acts chapter 8 to me, and I don't want to belabor this because I do want to get to our good friend, the Ethiopian treasurer, in just a moment. But it's interesting to me, in Acts chapter 5, we had the story of Ananias and Sapphira and how they lied uh, to the leaders of the church and to God, uh, to the Holy Spirit, Peter says, because they sold some property, they wanted to make a big deal about their generosity, so they pretended that it was all of the money, but they had kept some back. And they're both struck dead for it by the Holy Spirit. But interestingly enough, not Simon. You know, we read about some other instances in the Old Testament. That man Uzzah who tried to steady the Ark of the Covenant that uh, uh, David, King David, was having moved and transported. And he, he wasn't supposed to do that. Only the priests were supposed to do that and only under certain circumstances and in certain ways. And, uh, and he was struck dead, and it upset King David so much that he stopped the procession, and he refused to bring the ark to Jerusalem for a long time. Uh, we read about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, Aaron the priest, the brother of Moses, and his sons, were the, they were called to be priests. Uh, Nadab and Abihu would have been the ones who would follow in their father's footsteps as the priest, but they offered up some kind of strange fire in Leviticus 10. There's a lot to indicate that they were drunk, and for some reason uh, God uh, wouldn't have it, and he uh, uh, called down fire from heaven and burned them uh, as they were offering up those un uh, unbiblical uh, sacrifices of strange fire. Um, well, why not, why not Simon? Why not others that we read about? Why not King David with his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, her husband? Um, why not Saul of Tarsus? We're going to read about, and we've already started reading about. Well, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. That's one of those things that we leave to the sovereignty and the will of God, as Paul discusses in Romans 9 through 11. Um, Maybe their heart was so far away from God. Maybe God wanted to demonstrate something to the early church in Acts chapter 5, uh, to the Jews about uh, the holiness and sanctity. And he does make a point of that with Nadab and Abihu. I will be held uh, holy by those who uh, are performing these uh, worship tasks. A great warning to all of us as worship leaders today. But for here, 
Simon, it doesn't happen to him. And I, and I think it's a blessing uh, that it doesn't because it reminds us that no matter what our sin, no matter how far we go, no matter how horrible our heart becomes, we can still repent. We can still turn back and come back uh, to God. And that is, that is what uh, we are called um, to do. Um, I have a question about the Holy Spirit. Uh, can we pray with authority and sincerity for healing? I believe we can, and I do. Um, I don't see it happening like it did in the days of Jesus and like it did in the days of the apostles. Um, it, it just doesn't happen that way. I believe that we pray uh, for our loved ones to be healed, and we pray that God would do that through the medical means that we have available to us and thank Him for that, that that he would guide us with good wisdom and how to treat our, our illnesses. And I, I pray that God would, would heal in whatever way God would choose. My belief in the sovereignty of God is that God can act however God wants to act. But again, I don't believe that we see something going on like we see from Simon with the Samaritans. I just don't see that happening. And so I think that we, we recognize that God works primarily in other ways uh, today. And I and I and I am uh, I'm content with that, and I'm going to trust him with that. That's what we read about in Scripture. That's how Scripture seems to indicate uh, that those gifts were transferred. And I believe that to be true. I don't think they're speaking in other languages in a legitimate way. Maybe some people think they're doing that and believe very strongly that they're doing that. And again, I, I'm I can't explain it uh, if they're speaking in a bona fide language that they've never studied. Most of the stories I've heard, that's just not the case. And the same with uh, the incredible, miraculous, extraordinary uh, works and miracles of healing uh, that we read about. Um, so we trust God. Even Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians 12 prayed that that thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, would be removed. Uh, and yet God said no. And he said, I've got something better for you. I've got my presence. And I will work through you, um, through this thorn in the flesh even. Um, good question. Good question. Um, okay, let's continue on. Uh, Philip and the Ethiopian. We've read about Philip and uh, the Samaritans. And now this great story about this Ethiopian eunuch, this man uh, who was a servant of the queen. And he talks about this queen, Candace, some translate, uh, can, Kandaki or something uh, that others do. It doesn't seem to be a person, kind of like... Uh, uh, the Rabshika that we read about in the Old Testament uh, in the time of, uh, of Isaiah and Hezekiah, that's probably a title. Uh, and this is probably a title. It's likely the queen mother of, uh, in Ethiopia or in somewhere in uh, Africa, and they are, um, she's a member of the royal family. Uh, but that's probably not a proper name. That, I could be wrong on that, so you can study that one and, and decide uh, for yourself. But this story of Philip and the Ethiopian is very significant, and it's an amazing, incredible, and wonderful story of what it looks like for a person to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and so we read about this beginning in Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, remember he's still in the area of Samaria, and he's going to be there for a while still, till the end of the chapter, uh, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. Now he's traveling south. Uh, an, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandaki, 
which means queen of the Ethiopians, likely, again, the queen mother. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was reading in his chariot, I was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Well, who was this guy? Well, he was an official. He was probably a wealthy man. He was an important man, uh, worked for the royal family, uh, was an official, and, um, and he had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So uh, he was likely a proselyte uh, or a God-fearer, someone who had come from a Jewish background uh, and yet was there uh, with the Ethiopians and now was a servant and they, uh, under, the, under the royal family there. But he held on to his Jewish roots, and he had gone to Jerusalem uh, to worship uh, uh, in the city and likely at the temple. Uh, perhaps a proselyte, which means a convert to Judaism. Uh, perhaps someone uh, who was one of those God-fearers that had come to believe in the God of Israel. Uh, he had gone there to worship, and on his way back he was reading. He was reading his Bible. Isn't that great? He was reading his Bible, probably on his cell phone app, you, you know, you Bible or Bible Gateway. Well, okay, so he was reading his scroll, and it was the book of Isaiah, and it was Isaiah 53, one of the most powerful statements of the Messiah. What Jesus would be, it describes him so well, so well that many had said that, oh, yeah, of course it does, because it was written long after Jesus lived until the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Uh, in the 20th century, and when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and dated, it came to, they came to see that the Dead Sea Scrolls go back to at least 100 B.C., and it contains a full scroll of the book of Isaiah, including these words. The Spirit, verse 29, told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Uh, and, it, and, and then verse 30, Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And the way the narrative goes, it almost sounds as if the Spirit is telling Philip, go up and run alongside that chariot. And so I can, if that's true, and it may not be, but it, this is the picture in Bill's mind. I see Philip running up beside the chariot, just kind of huffing and puffing and hearing the man up there reading from the prophet Isaiah. Um, and it may be that the chariot had stopped and Philip just went over there, but obviously he can't join this man because he's an important man, likely with some uh, soldiers or some kind of bodyguards there uh, uh, without permission. And so the Holy Spirit says to Philip, go up and join it. And Philip ran up to the chariot, verse 30, and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage, verse 32, of Scripture the eunuch was reading again from uh, Isaiah 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Those of us who know the story of Jesus know exactly who that is descriptive of. It is Jesus of Nazareth. But this Ethiopian treasurer, this eunuch, uh, this man who had sacrificed greatly uh, to be in, a, in this position in um, serving the queen and the royal family, um, he asked Philip, verse 34, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? To this man's credit, he's willing to admit, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't get this. It's a pretty cool story, uh, but I don't understand it. 
Uh, is he talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And then verse 35. Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And that's what we do. We start where people are. Wherever they are, we start there. And we tell them the good news of the gospel, the story about Jesus. We start right there, wherever they are. In this case, Isaiah 53. And it's a great place to start for Philip. Um, Philip would say, hey, I can do this. This is great. Are you kidding me? Um, I'm sure it was very easy for him to make that transition. Whatever it is, that's, where we do, that's what we do. We start there. For a lot of people in today's world, we may have to start a lot further back than that because they don't know the story of Scripture. They're not familiar with the Old Testament or the New Testament. Some of them, even our, in our area, don't even know the story of Jesus. Impossible to believe, but it's true. And some who do know about Jesus don't know the real story of Scripture and what Jesus did and how he lived and what he stood for and what he taught and, and what his death and burial and resurrection meant. Um, and so Philip starts there. We can start there with people. We can start even further back in looking at reasons to believe in the credibility of Scripture, uh, reasons to believe that God is creator. Um, Philip starts right there in Isaiah 53 and tells him the good news about Jesus. Verse 36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And it's interesting to me that it's not Philip that says, hey, look, here's some water. We're riding right past it. Why don't we stop and, and baptize you right now? How about that? that? That's not the way it worked in the New Testament. Just like in the, on the day of Pentecost, you know, Peter didn't offer an invitation, so to speak. I think it's perfectly fine to do that. But it's almost as if they interrupted him after him saying, hey, you've, you've put to death the Messiah, and now God has made him both Lord and Christ. And they said, what do we do? And he tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here, the teaching of baptism had been a part of what Philip had shared with this man, just as it had been a part of what he shared with the Samaritans earlier. And so when they come up to some water, the Ethiopian official knows what the response of faith is, and he knows that it includes being baptized, and he says, how about, let's just do that right now. I'm ready. <clears throat> well, Philip has to determine, are, are you? Are you ready? And so that's where we have this textual uh, uh, variant, as they call it. This, uh, your verse 37 of Acts chapter 8 may be in a footnote. It may be in italics in the, <clears throat> in the, in the narrative, or it, or it may just uh, not look different at all. But in Acts 8, verse 37, if you read the footnote in the New International Version that I'm using, it says this, Some manuscripts include here, Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The eunuch answered, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Go back up to the text in verse 38. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea, in the northern part of Samaria, that coastal city at the Mediterranean Sea. Well, a lot to unpack here, and so we'll do it uh, relatively quickly. Um, 
First of all, the textual variant in Acts 8, verse 37. The manuscript evidence is mixed, and it's mixed enough to where some of the translations believe that it may not have been in Luke's original account. What, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that this confession never occurred? Well, not necessarily. There's other manuscript evidence that says it was there. And so there is a reason to believe that it may very well have been in Luke's original writing because it's included. There are a lot of other textual variants that aren't even included in a footnote because it's so skeptical that they were apart. Um, there are over 50,000 Greek manuscripts of, uh, of, of the New Testament. It's an amazing amount of manuscript evidence, and so many more as well. Well, the manuscript evidence is mixed on this passage. So what do we do with that, Bill? Well, I, I think we compare it. Uh, it's, I think it's okay to read it and use it, but we need to note that for people so that they will know that we're aware of this, but we can also compare it to other teaching of Scripture. And other teaching of Scripture is consistent that there is a call for confession. There's a call for confession of, of your faith. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells them, uh, unless you confess me before men, I won't confess you before my Father. Uh, and so he says, that, but if you will, then I promise I will confess you before others um, as well. In, uh, in Romans chapter 10, there is that passage that uh, says we believe with our heart to salvation and we confess with our mouth. Uh, and so we, we realize that there is other teaching of Scripture um, that talks about this. Paul talks about making the good confession uh, in 2 Timothy 2 and 1 Timothy 6 and in other passages uh, like that. We read about confessing faith in Christ, but we also read about confessing sin mentioned the passage in James 5 earlier that's talking to Christians to confess their sins uh, to one another. Uh, 1 John 1 says that we should confess that we are sinners, and if we don't, then we're lying. Um, and so there's two different aspects of confession, I think. Uh, but what the, the Ethiopian says here is consistent with what a person would confess, a person of faith would confess that they believe in Jesus. Um, we don't have a a certain pattern, a certain creedal statement that must be read. It's simply the call for people to confess that, that they believe, that this is not just, they're not just doing this to show off. They're not just doing this because somebody else is doing it or because they want to impress somebody. They're actually doing this as an act of faith in Jesus Christ. What Luke records here, based on the evidence, uh, the, the variant says in verse 37, he says, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's a wonderful confession. Others may say that differently. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that he was raised from the dead and that he's coming again. Another great statement of confession. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all and I want him to be uh, Lord in my heart and to save me from my sins. A wonderful confession uh, as well. Peter, uh, Philip asks him, do you believe? And again, it's the, it's the Ethiopian who raises this whole question of baptism to begin with. And then it says they both go down into the water. Philip baptizes him. They both come out of the water. I don't think it was by pouring. I don't think it was by sprinkling. I think just as Jesus' baptism was an immersion, just as the other baptisms in the first century uh, were immersions that we read about in Scripture, that's what this was as well. And I think this helps us to remember that. 
And again, we look to passages like Romans 6 and Colossians 2 that talk about the important nature of baptism, that it is a death to sin. That's that it's something that happens on the inside of us. Uh, it's uh, being buried with Christ through baptism into death, uh, under the water, just as Jesus was in the tomb, and then being raised uh, to live a new life, just as Jesus was raised from the dead and out of the tomb. I, I think all of those are significant. All of those are important. And all of those are, are consistent with what Scripture, scripture teaches. And we see that example earlier in Acts chapter 8 with the Samaritans that Philip baptized, including Simon. And we see that here in the latter part of, verse, of chapter 8 uh, with this Ethiopian official, uh, the servant of the queen mother in, uh, in Ethiopia. Um, and, and, and what happens? What happens when he's raised out of that water? It says he went on his way rejoicing. And that's what happens. Just as the Samaritan Christians rejoiced, great joy in the city when they saw the good that was being done and they were coming to faith and being baptized. This man goes on his way rejoicing. He had been, he had been confused. He had been questioning. What, who, I don't understand what Isaiah 53 means. I don't understand who he's talking about. Well, as he is taught, as he hears the wonderful story of Jesus, the one who, in the words of Isaiah 53, took the stripes that were meant for us, took the beating that we should have had, and by those stripes that were put on him, we ourselves are healed. My favorite verse of Scripture uh, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, a, a different version of John 3.16, saying, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think that's a great statement of what it talks about in Isaiah 53. It's a great statement of the gospel that Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. That's why this man was able to go on his way rejoicing. And that's why uh, those Samaritans were able to go on their way rejoicing. That's why those people on the day of Pentecost were so overjoyed as the church began and continued to meet with great joy. Uh, that's why the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, uh, when his life was spared, and he asked um, Paul and Silas, what can I do to be saved? And they tell him to believe, and they preach the message to him and his family. And that very same hour of the night, just like with the Ethiopian here, uh, that jailer and his whole family are baptized into Jesus Christ, and they go on their way rejoicing. <laughs> He goes back to putting Paul and Silas in jail uh, because that's his job and that's what they do. Uh, but the next day they are released. Um, it's just such a wonderful thing to be able to know that your sins are washed away. In the next chapter in Acts chapter 9, we're going to read again about Saul of Tarsus and we're going to read again about his exploits as the point man for the Jewish opposition to, to the church and to Christians going to the city of Damascus in Syria to try to find Christians there and bring them back to Jerusalem so he, they can stand trial and be imprisoned or beaten or put to death. But on the way, on the road to Damascus, he meets up face to face with the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And it changes his life uh, forever. And he'll be told to go into the city, and he will. And he'll be there for three days and three nights praying and fasting, obviously repentant. 
But Ananias, this Christian man, is brought to him and then tells him in the words, Paul's own words in Acts 22, verse 16. He tells him, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized and wash your sins away. We're going to get to tell that story and share that story on Thursday, uh, the wonderful conversion of Saul to Paul. Uh, I hope you'll be able to join in. I hope you'll be able to listen in. If you're listening in after the fact, that's great. Uh, you can listen in. You can watch these on my Facebook page. Uh, after it's done, I'll post it. You can also see them on our West Irwin Church of Christ Facebook page, and you can also see them at our website, uh, westirwin.com, and look under our social media, uh, scroll in there, and then find the link to um, our live streaming page and click on archives, and all of these are on there as well. I wish you God's greatest blessing, and if you have any questions about the, what we've talked about today and about the gospel message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the response of faith of believing in that death, burial, and resurrection and confessing those sins and turning away uh, from that life of sin and turning to a life of glorifying God and being baptized into Jesus Christ just as the Samaritans were, just as this Ethiopian treasurer were, was. Um, I'd love to be able to talk more about that with you. You can email me. You can uh, uh, give me a message uh, on Facebook. Um, you can give me a call. Whatever is needed, I hope and pray that you too will follow their example so that you too can go on your way rejoicing. God bless you.